Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge podcast. Today I'm joined by a very special guest that I'm super excited to talk about and a topic that I'm so passionate about. I'm so excited to have Dr. Rixa Freeze with me today. She is a research professor and also the president of Breach Without Borders. Dr. Rixa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here. I'm very, very excited to talk about breech birth. I think that it is something that people really want a lot of information on. It's very hard to find information on. And when you do find the information, it's really hard to then have conversations, whether that be with your partner, your family, your friends, your mom's group, your OB, your midwife. Um, We have found that not all midwives are even on board with breech birth breach is its very own special category so starting there can you tell us what are the basics that we need to know when we are talking about breach birth yeah well i'll start really basic and explain what it is most people who are listening to your podcast probably know but in case they don't it's when the baby comes out butt or knees or feet first rather than head first and it's about uh, three to 4% at term. And the earlier the baby is, the more preterm it is, the more likely it will be breech. So if you have an extremely preterm baby, it's something like 25% of all of them will be breech. So babies tend to be in different positions during pregnancy. And as it gets closer to their due date, they tend to settle head down, but there's a certain number of babies that don't, and they just stay head up for whatever reason. Sometimes we know why, but most of the time we actually still don't even know why. So there's some genetic component to it. Breach tends to run in families. Um, There's some component due to uterine shape. Sometimes if you have certain abnormally shaped uterus, um, like a bicornuate or unicornuate uterus, sometimes it might be due to a condition that the baby has. It might have some neurological unusual things going on that lead it to not flip around and turn down. But honestly, most of the time, we still don't know why some babies choose to remain breech and the rest of them turn around and come out head first. What about if you've had a breech birth before? Um, Are you more likely to have a breech baby with subsequent pregnancies? You are. And the more breech babies you have, the more likely your next one will be. Um, So like if you've already had two breeches or three breeches, I would 
highly suspect that you might have a uterine anomaly that predisposes your baby to sitting that way. And I would be prepared to have another breech baby. So it's not a guarantee. I mean, if you've had a breech baby once, I think it's a something like a 10% recurring chance that your next one will be, um, which is more than the average, but not a guarantee. But certainly the more you have, then the more likely the next one will be. Sure. And how do we treat breech births differently? So what kind of conversations should we be having with our providers if we find that our baby is breech and we're interested in having a breech delivery? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The big difference nowadays is that the vast majority of providers are not adequately trained and are not adequately experienced and thus not confident in their ability to safely attend a vaginal breech birth. In a setting with providers who are well-trained and comfortable doing it, the conversation doesn't necessarily need to be a lot different. There's a small subset of risks that are a little bit different for breech babies rather than head down babies. Some of it's due to the mode of birth, whether you have a C-section or vaginal birth. And some of the risk is just due to having a breech baby. There's a, there's a little bit of unique risks that come with a baby who's lying breech, doesn't matter which way it's born. So really the big conversation in a United States setting and in a setting in many places around the world, frankly, is can I even find somebody who knows what they're doing to attend me? That's that's the most important one that most people will have nowadays. And if you're in the situation where you find out at 35, 36, 37 weeks, 39 weeks that your baby's breech, you're going to find out very quickly that there's probably nobody to help you out. Or if there is somebody, you have to search far and wide and maybe call 30 different providers and maybe drive a couple hours across state lines in order to have a vaginal birth. So that's what's really shocking for a lot of women who discover a breech pregnancy is this feeling of abandonment. All of a sudden, there's not a single person who can take care of them, short of just doing a surgery that they don't want and they probably don't need. Um, and that's that's the biggest conversation. And that's what predominates most women's experiences is the stress of trying to find a provider and realizing that they don't have options. Yeah, because not only is it really not a wide skill, not a lot of providers possess this, but once you get that close to your due date, the providers that do have the skills, they're typically filled up. Their calendars are full or they can't take on any new clients or they're not mm -hmm. comfortable taking you that late. Um, yeah. This is, it really is a very stressful time for a lot of people. Okay. So you talked about not, you know, having a surgery that you may not need. Talk to us about the safety of breech birth, because this is what I find. And I think my team would agree that we find is the most, um, problematic conversation. Providers are really scared of breech births. And so then they use fear-based language and it kind of breeds fear into the person who has the breech baby. Yeah. Most providers who are educated today have an impression that breech birth is extremely dangerous, that it's almost a guarantee that your baby will die if you have a vaginal birth, that, that the danger is so high that even considering it is not reasonable at all. And that's typically the conversation that happens. It gets shut down very quickly. And the implication is why on earth would you kill your baby? You know, right. why would you want to do that? Um, when in fact, when you actually look at the research, the risk of a reach birth is very, very small. 
And so I'm going to talk you through some of the numbers quite briefly to give you an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about is breech birth dangerous. Now, the first thing to consider too is when we talk about risk, we have to ask risk to whom and when is that risk happening? Because actually there's a lot of different things to consider and each one is different. So you have the risk to the baby and that's what most people always think about. Is, it, is the baby going to die or suffer some major injury, right? But we also have to consider risks to the mother, which are very real for um, your choices when you're looking at vaginal birth versus a C-section. We also have to think about the long-term risk for the child who's born. So as that breech baby then grows up and goes through childhood and adolescence, are there any long-term risks to the way it's born? Of course, long-term risks to the mother too. Um, and long-term risks, not just this baby, but if the mother has any future pregnancies and future children, what are the risks of the mode of birth for the breech baby on any future children? So there's five main categories we have to think about short and long-term for the mother, short and long-term for the baby, and then also risks to the next child if there are more children. So let me walk you through each of them really briefly. I have really long, well-researched lectures going into this more if you're into these kinds of things. So I don't have time to get into the, into the statistical details, but you can look it up and check all the sources if you're interested. So let's talk first off short-term risk to the baby, because that's the one that everybody tends to focus on, you know, and in particular, the risk of perinatal mortality, the risk of the baby dying during labor or in the first 28 days after the birth. What we know from the research literature over the last 20 years, and I can say this with extreme confidence since I've gone through every single study on PubMed on breach since from about 1850 to the present. Um, and I have compiled all that data over the last 20 years and put it into a lecture. So this is not me reading somebody else's summary I've read everybody else's summaries too, but this is me actually going through every single piece of research methodologically and um, compiling everything I can find. So what we know from the research literature is that in general on the aggregate, when you look at nationwide data, so this is data collected from like the entire country of Finland, the entire country of France, the entire country of Norway or Sweden, right? Um, in, in these countries that collect data on a nationwide level, that's accurate, is that Breach birth adds a small amount of perinatal risk to the baby on the order of magnitude of about one in 1,000. So um, if you look at the baseline risk of having a C-section at 39 weeks prior to labor, um, if you consider that your baseline risk, you know, against which you're going to compare other options, the risk uh, when you have a breech baby, the risk of the baby dying in that scenario, a planned C-section at 39 weeks, is about one in every 2000 babies. Cause there's a certain number of babies that will die. You know, it's usually not related to the breach part of things, but you know, a small number will not survive. And that's your, that's your baseline risk. If you, if you want to consider C-section as the baseline, which in some ways is problematic, but just let's just run with that for a second. Um, so if you look at the, the risk of a vaginal birth, when a woman has a head down baby, just your, your regular old regular birth, right? Most people and most providers assume that you're going to plan a vaginal birth absent a strong indication for a cesarean section, right? Like it's pretty normally accepted that that's what we're going to do. The risk in that situation of, of the baby dying in the perinatal period is about one in every 1000. Okay. That's just kind of your baseline risk for a planned vaginal birth of a regular boring head down baby. And it's a slightly higher than the planned C-section because you're skipping labor and you're skipping the last couple of weeks of pregnancy. 
and you know things can happen so you don't have that risk of stillbirth because you've already ended the pregnancy so there's a slightly higher risk of stillbirth just by being pregnant and there's also a slightly higher risk of something happening during the labor so you know if you're comparing your baseline c-section at 39 weeks versus a head down planned vaginal birth it's one in 1000 versus one in 2000 right so there's a slightly higher risk by just going into labor and having a baby vaginally and that risk most people accept without blinking an eye really because it's understood that there's a lot of risks with C-sections and you don't just want to hand them out like candy, right? Because it's a major surgery. So that's your two, that's your two risks that we're starting with. And then how does breach come into that picture? What we find looking at the best nationwide data. So this is looking at a lot of births in the aggregate, you know, millions and millions of data points is that a planned vaginal breach birth in a first world industrialized nation context adds about another risk of one in 1,000 chance of perinatal mortality, okay? So for an overall risk, if you add the risk of the vaginal birth, you know, itself, not the breech part, but just the vaginal part, being pregnant and having a vaginal birth, that's about one in 1,000. And then the breech adds another one in 1,000 for a combined risk of about two in 1,000, okay? So those are your three kind of comparison points. Yes, breech adds a little bit of risk, but having a baby vaginally and being pregnant adds some risk too. And so only half of the risk of a breech baby is even because of the breech part. The rest of it's just the normal risk that we accept as normal and reasonable by being pregnant and having a baby vaginally anyway. I should also say that, you know, this is nationwide data from a number of countries put together and is an average. What we find is that in countries where obstetricians and midwives never lost the skill of breach and where it's done regularly and where everybody's taught the skills or in centers where there are specifically breach specialty centers, the data on those outcomes are as good as a planned C-section at 39 weeks. So what we can say with a good amount of confidence is that if you come from a background where you're skilled and experienced and where the people around you are skilled and experienced, that it looks like the risk of perinatal mortality can be eliminated entirely. And it's just as good as a planned C-section at 39 weeks. In other words, there's no benefit to routinely planning a C-section. So we can say that it can be just as safe as a planned C-section if people are experienced and skilled. And I think that's a really important point to emphasize because we have made breech birth more dangerous by not doing it. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is that providers are skilled and experienced and get to practice and do this. And the very fact that they don't know how to do it guarantees that it's going to be dangerous. And we're in a catch 22 because at some point you have to start doing it to be able to become experienced. And most people are so scared of starting to do something that they don't know how to do well, that it's just not even a consideration and there's liability and there's malpractice insurance and there's pressure from your risk, you know, risk management people at the hospital and, you know, state medical boards or midwifery regulation boards. But I'm going to say it, if you don't do breech birth, you're making breech birth more dangerous by not doing it. So skill and experience lead to better outcomes. So that's the short-term look at what happens to the baby, right? Now, this is in contrast to the big study 20 years ago, the term breach trial that effectively ended vaginal breach birth around the world. It was already on a downward trend, but it really sealed the deal and nailed, you know, the nail in the coffin, whatever expression you want to use. And that study did find a higher rate, rate of perinatal mortality and of severe injury 
And it turns out that the study had a lot of flaws in its design, in its recruitment, in um, its exclusion and inclusion criteria that were not followed well. And it has been since disproven or um, critiqued so extensively that we can't rely on this out-of-date trial to support our ban on vaginal breech birth because those data points are outliers. And they're not supported by any of the recent evidence over the last two decades. So let's move on to the mother, maternal outcomes. Um, so we have short and long-term. Short-term is kind of during the period of the hospital stay, immediate postpartum um, period. And unequivocally, vaginal birth is safer for the mother, both in the short-term and in the long-term. And I don't think anybody's arguing that point. You know, there some studies coming out of the term breach trial found that there is a slightly higher short-term morbidity. Um, some are finding, you know, larger outcomes, but in, in any study you look at pretty much vaginal birth comes out better for the mother short and long-term. And this includes the risk of dying. Um, this includes the risk of having placenta accreta or percreta. This includes the risk of uterine rupture if you have a C-section and then you have a feedback. This includes the risk of the baby dying for whatever reason. If you have a C-section for a breech baby and you have another baby after that, no matter how the next baby is born, your baby has a higher risk of dying if you had a C-section the first time. So there's you know, unarguably uh, more risk to the mother short and long-term if she has a C-section versus a vaginal birth. And this is important if a woman is not absolutely sure that she's done having children when she has this first, this breech baby, whether it's a first or a middle baby, um, if she thinks there's any chance she's going to have more then the conversation should be, let's do everything we can to make this birth vaginal because it's so much safer for you. Um, and then moving on to the last thing that we want to talk about is what happens for future babies and future pregnancies. And unequivocally, it is a lot safer for all the mother's future babies if her breech baby is born vaginally. This is true for both term breech babies and preterm breech babies, looking at the subsequent baby after. Um, there's a higher chance of the baby dying or having severe problems if the sibling who was breech was born by C-section. And it's largely due to the uterine scar and all the complications that stick with the mother throughout her entire reproductive future by having that cesarean section. And of course, we have to think in a U.S. context where 90, 90 plus percent of all C-sections become repeat C-sections, the VBAC rate is very low. We have to keep that in mind is that most women are not encouraged or quote unquote allowed to have a VBAC or a VBAC provider might at best kind of be only mildly supportive and at the first sneeze or sniffle off she goes to surgery. And, you know, there's always a reason to send her off to surgery because for whatever reason, they're just not comfortable with it. Even if they tell the client and they're supportive during pregnancy, you know, it's a, you hear a lot about the, um, the concept of bait and switch where providers will say, yeah, I'm, I'm VBAC friendly. Yeah. Um, sure. We can do it. And then 39 weeks, Oh, baby's too big. Baby's too small. Pelvis is too big. Pelvis is too small. <laughs> Whatever it is, there's always a reason. Um, oh, I just think it's safer for everybody. If we do the C-section, it's just not going to happen. I'm so sorry. You know, there's always, there can always be an excuse. And what it comes down to really is, you know, our, as a provider, you need to be really thoughtful of, what you're communicating to your, to your clients. Um, this is for breach or be back or, you know, twins or whatever. Um, it, it doesn't serve clients well to be kind of dishonest with them in a way. If honestly, you're not really that comfortable with feedback, but you tell them that you are, and then you always find an excuse to nudge them to cesarean section. So that's just a reality too, is that most women who have a C-section will go on to have more C-sections and that increases the risk dramatically each time you have another C-section. 
So we have to think long-term. We can't just think short-term outcomes. You know, is the baby going to live? That's mostly what we think about. Did the baby survive the birth and was the baby reasonably healthy? And, you know, by the time it left the hospital and in part, we, we talk about that because that's what most providers see. They have the baby's born, mom leaves the hospital a few days later, off they go and they maybe see them at six weeks, but that's it. That's, you know, there's not the long-term continuity of care necessarily that where providers can connect the consequences of their actions and their recommendations like six years down the road or 10 years down the road. So the providers probably don't see the long-term ramifications of the decisions that happen around a birth you know, that might continue years later, but that provider might not make that connection because they don't, they might not know. Or even the emotional um, downstream effects of a woman who felt like she had no choice and she was forced or coerced into having surgery and felt like all of her autonomy and, and control over her body was stripped away. That's, it's really, really traumatic, but her physician might not see that and might not ever know that that's going on. So so that's in a nutshell, that's kind of the risks and benefits um, long and short term of, of the situation that we're in now. And this is mostly, you know, in, in reference to term breach, preterm is a little bit different, but you know, what we can say with a lot of confidence is that most preterm breach births aren't any more dangerous, or if they are, it only adds a small amount of risk. Cause most of the risk in a preterm birth isn't the breach part. If it's breach, it's mostly just the prematurity itself. You know, the breach just adds a tiny bit, but even with preterm most, you know, most can be born um, breach as well. We're finding this from, you know, countries that still do quite a bit of vaginal breach births for preterm babies too. Sir, so what do we know about breach birth um, in the hospital versus home birth? Anything? Mm -hmm. This is a tricky question because the amount of hospital data we have compared to the amount of home birth birth data for breaches is so vastly different. Um, we have millions of data points for hospital birth outcomes and we have very, very few data points for home birth outcomes. And the home birth outcomes are not systematically collected in, in like national registries the same way that a hospital birth would be. So for example, in a lot of these European countries like Norway, Sweden, France, they have national registries where 99 point something percent of all the births in the entire country get entered in and they have a great deal of data. It's almost like linking a hospital record. It's not like our US birth certificate data, which is very sparse. You know, so they have detailed birth information that's on these national perinatal registries. And then you can do all these amazing research projects with them. In contrast, home birth doesn't have any systematic way of collecting the information, especially the information that's detailed and verifiable. Birth certificate data is extremely problematic for collecting any sort of um, detailed information on outcomes like breach, because it doesn't ask any relevant questions or information that would actually be useful, you know, including like, was this a planned home birth? Did they even know it was breached beforehand? So we do have some information, but it's really limited. Um, and what we know is that the information we have, which only has like something like 500 something breach births total in, in the entire database, does show uh, a higher rate of perinatal mortality in a home setting versus a hospital setting. But with the caveat that this data that we have is extremely limited, we don't have any information on whether it was known or unknown in advance, whether um, what kind of breach it was, the education level of and training level of the provider, you know, all this information that we typically have when we have hospital-based data. Um, so it's really hard to compare the home versus hospital because of the, the relative dearth of information that we have on home breach outcomes. What I can say is that we have some amazing data collection projects that are happening right now. Um, 
I personally know two midwives who are both compiling their breech birth outcomes. They're both um, home birth based midwives. They've both done over 500 vaginal breech births over their careers, plus another about 500 sets of twins of which many were breech. And we will have so much more information about the safety profile of breech birth at home. Once we get this data analyzed, we'll have a thousand plus data points just from these two providers alone who do mostly, you know, physiological upright breech birth, who have a consistent set of kind of training and skills and protocols that we can say, if you have this much education, or if you do these things, it's reasonably, you know, you can reasonably expect this kind of outcome. So when that's published, hopefully not too far in the future, we will have a lot more information that we can actually say, here's what the safety looks like. Because right now it's just so hard to say, honestly. And the training and experience level of home birth providers is all over the place as far as their breach training and education. Um, you know, we're, we do a lot of training and education as an organization. And right now, the majority of our attendees are midwives. And some of them are hospital-based and some of them are birth center-based, but a large number of those are home birth-based. And I give them all of the pats on the back for wanting to improve their skills and education, whether they want it to just for the occasional surprise breach, or they want it because they want to offer this as a, as a thing that their clients can actually choose and plan for. Um, and we're hoping that we can also motivate the hospital-based providers to want to gain this knowledge because I would love for breach birth to be widely available in hospitals. Not that I want it to be banned from home, but I think that the 99% of women who are birthing in hospitals still deserve to have that option. Because to be honest, if you want a vaginal breach birth right now in almost any city in the United States, you have to go to a home birth provider because the hospital people aren't doing it, which is totally insane because they're the one, if you ask anybody based in a hospital, you know, is it safe to have a breech baby at home? They're going to panic and say, no way you're going to, you know, it's dangerous. But then like, why won't you do it at the hospital? It's too dangerous. So they're, you know, I'm sure that's the, the extent of the conversation a lot of times, but it's the home birth midwives that right now are showing up. They're willing to learn and they're willing to practice and improve their skills. And I'd say, great, that's wonderful. Now let's get the hospital providers on board. You know, um, if you want to look at breach, even in terms of um, harm reduction, right? There's this philosophy like, okay, for example, when we're talking about like, um, you know, opiate or, you know, um, injection drug users, right? There's the idea of, should we have needle exchange programs? you know, to make it safer for them. Some people say, well, we shouldn't because we're encouraging a dangerous behavior, but risk reduction or harm reduction philosophy says, we have to accept the fact that these people are going to do this. Why don't we make it safer? So they, at least if they're going to use these drugs, we can decrease the risk of them in contracting an infectious disease. So even if you totally abhor the idea of breech birth at home or home birth in general, why don't you take the harm reduction approach and say, let's make breach birth as safe as we can. So let's educate everybody in our hospital. Let's make sure everybody's trained. Let's make sure that we don't push women into the home setting because we're not, because we're refusing to do it ourselves. Because frankly, that's what's happening. And if you're a provider who's hospital-based and listening to this, first of all, thank you, because I know it's kind of a taboo topic and, you know, on par with, you know, eating babies for dinner, probably <laughs> um, for a lot of people, you know, um, if you're listening to this, maybe you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable and that's probably a good thing. Maybe that means that you need to up your game a little bit, you know, take some risks. Um, don't force women to take risks because you're too scared, right? That's what you're doing. If you're not willing to be breach trained and offer that as an option, you know, um, this is not to shame anybody, but it's to say, 
why, you know, as a provider, your job, your ethical responsibility is to provide safe and skilled care to the people you take care of. If you're not even willing to learn how to do something safely, that to me indicates that you might need to change a little bit and be willing to educate yourself and to take some personal risks because you probably feel uncomfortable with it because you've been trained that it's very dangerous. You've been, you've been educated in a culture of fear, but why not? Why not at least learn the skills? Maybe you won't start out by offering planned vaginal breach birth, but maybe you would offer it to those, you know, surprise breaches who come in eight centimeters already feeling a little bit pushy or a grand multip who's like, I got this, I've had five babies, just let me give it a chance. You know, maybe that's where you start, but like at least consider starting and don't be so scared that you're not even willing to learn the skills and to learn about how it works. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by how beautiful a process breach birth can be and how it makes so much sense once you understand what it looks like and how it works and you understand the mechanics and how this baby navigates its way through the pelvis. And I, I really think that if you take our training, not to say that we're the only one, but I think we're the, the, the only major organization in the U.S. right now that's training, I think you'll be honestly quite surprised by how fun it is to learn and how fascinating it is. And it will demystify the process for you and probably make you a lot less scared for the eventual breach that's going to come out in your door at some point. It's going to happen. So why not be prepared? I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that as providers, and I harp on this all the time, it is your job to offer your patients, your clients, the spectrum of care, whether you agree with that care or not. So whether you would choose breech birth for yourself or not, if mm -hmm. you have agreed to be an obstetrician or a midwife that attends labors, then you have agreed to support this person in whatever they have chosen. Um, and if you can't fulfill that, then at the end of the day, you're actually not meeting your job requirements. And that's how I wholeheartedly feel. I do, I feel that every single provider should have to be trained in twin and breach and VBAC. You should be able to offer the entire spectrum. It doesn't have to be your specialty. And I would expect that some obstetricians would be specialized in breach and VBAC and twins, but every provider out there, in my opinion, if I ran the U.S. medical system, would have to have experience and knowledge and training in the otherwise normal variations of birth. While VBAC can arguably say, you know, be said it's not a normal variation, it is because of something that we've done before. So we do deserve to give those bodies a chance to go through the natural process, um, you know, mm -hmm. as if we maybe had not intervened last time, whether it was needed or not. Okay, so circling us back to um, what we can expect from the breach birth experience, are we looking at a longer labor? Are we looking at longer push times? How is breach going to impact the actual physical labor part? Yeah, as far as I know from the research, and this is a question that has not been well compared, like comparing the pattern of breech labors with cephalic labors, I don't think we can say with any certainty that breech is significantly different. There can be a wide variation, just like with the head down baby. Some labors are wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and they're done in four hours. Some labors are putsy and they stop and they start and, you know, you have a plateau and you take a break for a while and, you know, some are 36 hours and some are 15 minutes. So, um, breach, breach labors can have as much variety as a cephalic labor. And, you know, the key aspect is, are, is the baby tolerating the labor well? And is the mother tolerating the labor well? And as long as you know, mother and baby are sounding happy, 
and doing okay, then just like with cephalic, I think you can you can tolerate a wide range of a, a wide range of variation. I mean, I think that the big difference is that because breech births, as the baby's born past about the umbilicus, give or take, usually there there often can be some cord compression in advance of the head being born. Not always, but you kind of expect that the last last few moments of birth there's going to be some cord compression, um, and. I think the one concern would be that if the baby has already lost a lot of its reserves during labor and is already struggling, you know, in advance of the expulsion stage, it might be harder for that baby to tolerate that compression, cord compression and restriction of oxygenation at the very end, if it's already been depleting its reserve and, and having a long, uh, you know, a struggle beforehand. So that would probably be clinically the only thing that would be more concerning, um, you know, because there might be a, a little bit more prolonged time where the baby doesn't have as much oxygen at the very end. Not always though, but you know, that would, that's one thing I would be concerned about, but that's, again, that's something that's going to become apparent during labor that the baby, you know, the baby is really showing shines of distress, you know, and not just like the occasional stray deceleration, but, you know, a, a, a pattern that's pretty evident that the baby is not doing well, but that's the same with cephalic, right? I mean, it, it's not like there's anything about breach that is necessarily that different in, in terms of the labor. And same with expulsion stage. I mean, if you're a first time mom, you can expect it's going to take longer than a multip, right? Same with head down babies. Um, we do know from some research that, you know, in some German studies where they compared the average length of labor and pushing from frank breaches and non-frank breaches, it seems like frank breaches tend to take a little longer, not have any better, any worse outcomes, but just that both stages seem, seem to take longer compared to non-frank, like completes or incompletes. Um, this has not been studied extensively, so it's hard to say if this is replicable in other centers. It's just this one center in Germany happened to study that. And they theorized, you know, why is it that frank breaches tend to take longer, both for labor and for pushing than a complete breach? So there's that, you know, um, but otherwise, I don't know if I'd ex counsel people to expect anything predictably different because they labors can be so wide ranging in the first place. A good number of women report that it feels different when you actually have that pushing ejection reflex because you don't have this hard bowling ball head pushing on everything. Um, it's a little squishier. So people report that sometimes it just feels different when they push and often the incredibly strong urge to push that you get, you know, if you're not being coached, tends to come later in the process, sometimes at the very end. Now, this is kind of a general observation. It's not true for everybody, but you might feel a little different and it might not quite feel as much like you have this great big bowling ball coming out. You know, it might feel a little differently because it's not quite as hard um, with the thing that crowns or rumps. Yeah. So there's that. It might feel a little bit different. Some people say it feels about the same though. So it can vary, but that's one thing that you might be prepared for something that feels a little bit different as it's rumping, you know, as the baby's actually emerging through your perineum. Sure. That's yeah. fascinating, but it makes so much sense if you think about the anatomy of our bodies and what it might feel like to push out a bum or uh, feet rather than a head. It all makes so much sense. Okay. So my very last question is, um, 
let's start off with a very bold statement that just because you have a breech baby, you don't have to have a C-section. Obviously, that's what we've talked about this whole time. So let's wrap up with uh, two things. If we have a breech baby, is there a better position or are there better labor and birth positions than others? Obviously upright, but are there any positions that stand out? And then the last question is, if we were interested in breech birth, where do we find a provider? How do we start that search in finding someone who might be able to serve us if we have a breech baby? Mm -hmm. So first off, what we know from the research about positions that optimize the breech birth process, we do know from the research that upright birth positions, so kneeling or standing or all fours, hands and knees, is better in terms of maternal outcomes, fewer maternal injuries. It's better in terms of neonatal outcomes, fewer uh, neonatal injuries. It's better in terms of a lower C-section rate. Um, it's better in terms of fewer need, uh, the, a lower need for using maneuvers to get the baby out. So the babies get stuck a lot less often when mom is upright versus um, on her back. And this comes from a large study from a German breach specialty center where they compared three things. They compared their planned C-section breaches with their planned vaginal breaches. And among the vaginal breaches, they compared outcomes when the woman was in a hands and knees position or upright in some form, standing, kneeling, versus on the back in the traditional supine position. So they were able to compare these three. Um, and it's really fascinating because it's the outcomes are so much better in pretty much every metric if the woman is in the upright position of her choice versus on her back. So we can pretty much say without any doubt that um, a supine position makes the birth longer. Oh yeah. And second stage was longer. So it makes the birth longer. It injures the mother more. It injures the baby more. It causes more babies to get stuck and need assistance. And it causes more of the vaginal births to quote unquote fail and move to cesarean section. Wow. So for every one of these reasons, you want to be birthing in an upright position if at all possible. But what I would not do is be dogmatic and be like, you must be on your hands and knees at this time, you know, but just explain to the mother in advance, the outcomes are so much more, so much more beneficial to you and your baby in so many different ways. If you're in some kind of an upright position of your choice, and you can say, this could be standing, it could be kneeling, it could be an asymmetrical lunge, it could be squatting, whatever feels right for you, because, you know, the women, if, if you've ever labored and been in an environment there where you were completely free to move and encouraged to really listen to your body's cues, you will know that there are certain positions that just feel better and that you could get drawn to. And they're certain that you cannot even conceive of the possibility of trying to do it. Like I could never have lain down during my four labors. It would have been unthinkable to lie down. I never did once ever, you know, and, um, I know if you're based in a hospital, you're probably mostly used to seeing births on the back. That's what you've been trained to do. But with breech birth, it's it's essential that you know how to do breech births with the woman upright. That's the go-to default position. Um, and that's the one that you should become comfortable with first. And you'll probably learn to love it. Upright birth is amazing. You have so much better visibility of the baby as it's coming out. And there's a lot of different things the breech baby does that you can't see if you're having the mother birth on her back, but you see super, super easily if she's on hands and knees or standing when you're behind her and looking at the the birth from behind visibility is better. And the baby does all these different movements that you don't see when she's supine. And it actually helps you as a provider understand the process and reassure yourself that the steps that the baby's taking are normal. So yes, I would say 
encourage your client or your patient to be in whatever position she wants to, but especially encourage her to be in some kind of an upright position if she can at all find a comfortable one for her. And other than that, encourage her to move freely and change positions as much as she feels she needs to. There isn't like, you know, it's not like we can say, oh, the Captain Morgan style position is the best position and you must stay in it the entire pushing stage, you know, where you know, one leg up and one, one knee on the floor, right? Or, you know, hands and knees is the only good one, but upright position of your choice. That is what you should tell people. And you should, if you're in a hospital setting and doing breaches, you also need to have a conversation with your nursing staff so that they know the protocol is let the mom know that she should be in whatever position feels best, but especially encourage and facilitate an upright position, you know? Um, and so don't break the bed down and turning it and turn it into a reclining position with stirrups out, right? Don't do that. You know, just say, Hey, you know, um, do whatever you like standing up is better. Kneeling is better. Let me get you a birth ball. Let me raise the head of the bed so you can go on your knees and drape your torso over it. You know, maybe slow dance with your partner, whatever, you know? So, um, I love, I love upright breech birth and upright birth in general. And I'm hoping that if we can train enough people to do upright breech birth, it'll convince people that upright birth in general is so much fun. It's so much better. <laughs> yeah, It is so normal. I mean, as, as a person who's had four babies, all completely physiological, you know, self-led totally, you know, interdirected the whole process. Nobody ever told me what to do at all. I can't imagine doing it any other way. And I was moving the whole time, every labor I was moving and upright and swaying and walking and squatting and sitting in a ball and doing hula hoops with my hips. And, you know, the thought of being directed of how to hold my body is impossible. Um, nobody could have known better than me what my body needed to do and how it needed to move. And, you know, it would change from contraction to contraction. So that's all I say is just tell your people, do whatever feels best and give yourself complete liberty to move and do whatever your body needs to do. And maybe if they're not used to seeing this, because maybe they've grown up watching too much television and seeing women lying down, say, that's not actually physiologically very normal and show them pictures and videos of all the things women do as they're dealing with labor. And, you know, you just need an environment where you're free to really just move and, and dance and get that baby out. And if you're left to your own devices in a supportive environment, you're going to find what feels best and you'll, you'll naturally do those things that help the baby come out. And it, it doesn't have to be this complicated process. It's just mostly giving the mental and emotional and physical freedom to, to move. And a lot of that comes with safety. So if you're with a provider who does not feel safe in secure in their own skills of supporting a breech birth, you too are not going to feel safe with their care because you're going to pick up on their own fear. Their fear will transfer to you. I've seen it a million times. All right, Dr. Risa, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And to everyone out there, I hope that you check us out on Instagram, um, visit us on YouTube or listen to the podcast. We will link all of the things that you need to get a hold of and look into all of the resources that we have from Dr. Risa today. Otherwise, I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. 
If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident. Hey there, just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hehe and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.